Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to episode 125 of the Naturally Nourished podcast. Today we're talking all about functional lab testing. And this is a topic I think we get into in just about every episode with some recommendation of a lab based on the topic we're addressing, but we've never dedicated a full episode to lab testing. So today we'll be diving in with what functional lab testing is, how we use it in practice to determine root cause for our patients, and what labs are essential across a variety of different scenarios. Yes, I'm super excited about today's episode and I'm sure that this is going to be one of those that you're going to want to have pause and rewind and your little notebook (laughs) to take notes as far as recommendations that I'll be making in today's uh, topic. But um, rest assured, Becky will always put together really good show notes. So you can always go over to the uh, AllieMillerRD.com website and under the podcast button, you'll be able to see clickable links for the labs that we offer direct to you guys. And then as well as some of the listing and things like that. So it's so important with the concept of functional labs assessments to understand where you are right now when we're looking at understanding the whys of root causes of imbalance in the body. If you don't know where you are as a base assessment, you don't know necessarily where you need to go and what priorities may be the strongest when we're working with functional approaches of nutritional supplementation or dietary interventions or lifestyle element changes. Yes. And I know I hear this all the time. My doctor runs tons and tons of labs. I'll bring them. (laughs) And a patient will come in and they bring us like a CBC and a comp and maybe like TSH and T4 or something. Um, And that is not a ton of labs. Those are like (laughs) bare bones basics, you guys. So let's talk about what functional lab testing actually is and how this helps us to determine root cause or the why of dysfunction in the body. Yes. So I think that's such a good point, Becky. And I I laugh about that all the time. Um, You can have seven pages of labs, you know, from your general practitioner and it may only be three panels that were ordered. And um, in more of a conventional medicine model, most physicians are going to use labs to screen for disease state. And then they're going to potentially run some advanced markers based on the values of a a very preliminary workup. Um, And in a functional medicine model, there's a couple things that we take into account that are different. One is the level of detail of information provided and the actual analytes that we're assessing as priorities. Um, And so for instance, in a conventional assessment of thyroid, 
often we're just looking at TSH or thyroid stimulating hormone. And we'll, we'll go deeper down the rabbit hole in a moment of a functional assessment and why that isn't an accurate marker of thyroid gland at all. Um, and then when we're talking about functional assessments as well, even of the values we're looking at, there are going to be functional lab ranges where we would be in an optimal state versus the reference range. So the reference range of a lab, you know, is based on a population assessment. And a lot of the people in our population are sick and feeling mediocre (laughs) at best. (laughs) So, you know, in a functional assessment, we might use a standard lab value like TSH, for example, and there might be a functional range within it. But then a functional practitioner would hopefully look deeper into the what is this information telling us and how do I apply this to the function of the glands of the body and learn more about the influencing factors of that system in the body. Sure. So looking beyond individual gland or individual hormone to, you know, the complex web of everything that surrounds that system. Right. We're trying to catch the trend or the pathology, right, in medical terms of a condition before it's completely expressed on a diagnostic level. And even if it is expressed on a diagnostic level, we want to think deeper about the contributing overlapping factors when we're choosing priorities of intervention. Sure. So that's that's a big thing to highlight right there. A lot of times in a conventional model, we're just screening for disease or screening for that lab marker that's going to put you into a diagnostic code, right? In a functional model, it's looking, maybe we're not even expressing symptoms at the time, but it's looking at how can we optimize this individual so they don't get there. Yes. And, you know, in the gamut beyond, we think of commonly serum or blood tests, right? As far as most conventional panels. Um, And today we'll talk about those ones that you should request from your doctor um, as far as standard blood test labs. And then the world of functional lab testing would also include more specific markers like food sensitivity testing, um, looking at maybe saliva and urine in the mode of hormones and neurotransmitter testing. Uh, looking at stool, which a conventional stool test might test for, for instance, C. diff, like a marker of one pathogen. And if you test negative, that's all you get is your stool tested negative. On a functional stool test, we're going to look at actually what is living in the gut. So it's more inclusive versus just exclusive light switch on off type information. Um, And then we will also get into a little bit of genetic testing, which would be salivary as well. So a lot of different specimen types, right? We're looking at things like even hair for heavy metal. So we got hair, blood, we have urine, saliva, and stool all as potential um, contributors to information on how your body's functioning. Sure. And, you know, a lot of times those general labs that our doctors are running, they end up ruling out a condition and going, oh, there's nothing wrong. You look perfectly healthy. And this individual is sitting there like, I feel like shit and you're not finding (laughs) the root cause. So that's ultimately, you know, when they end up coming to us um, and we end up going down the rabbit hole of one or more of these functional tests. Absolutely. Um, And often, you know, beyond that, the labs can just kind of miss the mark. Like you were mentioning, let's get into um, a comparison of what you'd consider a complete thyroid panel versus what's conventionally or traditionally run. 
Sure. So standard is just to run a TSH, which that stands for the thyroid stimulating hormone. Okay. And the thyroid stimulating hormone is actually not made by the thyroid gland itself. So when you're running TSH to look at the function of someone's thyroid, that's quite inaccurate. You're actually looking at a feedback mechanism of how stimulated the thyroid is by a hormone made in the pituitary, a part of the brain that is integral to that H, it's the P in the HPA axis, right? So I talk a lot in my episodes about that fight or flight, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal mode. And TSH or thyroid stimulating hormone, generally speaking, is going to be increased if the thyroid is not performing, so we usually think of an elevation of TSH to be diagnostic of hypothyroid, but TSH could be elevated in dysregulation of the pituitary, or maybe the pituitary is so distressed on addressing the adrenal output in a chronically stressed individual that the TSH incorrectly stimulates and understimulates. So TSH might drop. So it's really more a direct comparison of the, it's a direct, excuse me, function of the pituitary gland. And its mechanism is to use feedback based on amount of free circulating thyroid hormone in the bloodstream. And it's supposed to rev up or reduce stimulation to the thyroid gland in response to the amount of active thyroid hormone. So if you are looking at if your thyroid is quote unquote working appropriately, you don't just want to run TSH. It's a good piece to consider, but you'd also want to look at your two forms of free hormone, your inactive free T4 and your active free T3. Okay. And then within this world, there's also going to be inflammatory and autoimmune responses in the gland. So we would look at thyroid peroxidase, for instance, as a marker of inflammation in the gland and a marker of Hashimoto's thyroiditis or inflammation of the thyroid. Um, we'd also look at antithyroglobulin. Um, there's antibodies when the immune system is attacking itself and attacking specifically the thyroid tissue. And that might be a marker that you'd want to look at to screen and get negative to ensure that the individual isn't dealing with that autoimmune reaction. Um, so we look at a panel that actually has eight key indicators. And because today isn't just about thyroid, I'll kind of hold back <laughs> from going deeper into the interworkings of these compounds, but we run a panel called the, the Thyroid Complete Test. It's a blood test, and it looks at eight indicators, including TSH, free T3, free T4, also the thyroxine binding, because remember, all hormone is like a lock and key mechanism, so how is that actually being used by the gland, and then those inflammatory and autoimmune markers as well. Sure. And, you know, if doctors were running some of those inflammatory autoimmune markers, they may be able to catch hypothyroid before it becomes hypothyroid. So just going back to ensuring you're getting a complete picture, not just, you know, accepting a diagnosis of, oh, you're hypothyroid. Well, we strive to find out why and how all of those hormones are working in synergy versus just diagnosing based on TSH alone. And right, when you when you dumb down the diagnosis, you dumb down the intervention. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, that's, that's just the, the best way to say it, right? If you are using elementary information in the diagnosis and the assessment, 
then you're likely going to be using really elementary interventions, like putting someone on Synthroid just because their TSH is elevated. And you may be band-aiding this inflammatory autoimmune condition that the individual doesn't learn about until later down the line. And maybe now the Synthroid is keeping their circulating hormone levels okay because they're taking synthetic hormone, but the whole system, we start to deal with goiters or nodules or dysfunction on a glandular level that actually works against the body because we never asked the why in the first place. Sure. So no one ever looked at antibodies in the first place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So we'll get into a little bit more when we get into standard versus uh, reference range or optimal reference range. We'll talk, we'll circle back to thyroid as a good example of that. Uh, but we do have a podcast specifically on the stress thyroid connection that gets a lot deeper and goes over those functional ranges that we're looking for, um, as well as a blog on the same topic that I'll make sure that I link to. Um, And then beyond thyroid, I think another um, really good panel to talk about and talk through kind of the comparison in a conventional versus functional model would be cholesterol and looking at a standard cholesterol panel where you're looking at total cholesterol, HDL, LDL, and triglycerides versus a lipoprotein particle size, or beyond that, looking at a full cardiometabolic panel. So tell us what the difference is between those. Yeah. So, and I'm super excited in the next coming weeks, I think within the next five episodes, we're going to be bringing um, Dr. Nadir Ali on here, who is a cardiologist and um, a keto-focused cardiologist who is just going to enlighten everyone on, on really mechanisms of plaque formation and, and vascular integrity and all of this. So I'm really excited for that conversation. But generally speaking, right, your doctor says, oh, I'm worried about your cholesterol levels because, you know, all they look at is the total LDL, triglycerides, and HDL, as you said. We can all acknowledge that HDL is cardioprotective. Um, And we can all acknowledge that triglycerides are definitely harmful. And um, we can see that LDL may be harmful, um, but we do know with more up-to-date research that it is the particle size of the LDL that is a stronger indication of risk factor. And then even stronger indications of cardiovascular risk factor exist that are non-lipidology related such as inflammation, like our C-reactive protein, Um, also looking at markers like homocysteine, which is a marker of methylation, um, which plays a big role on the rigidity of our vessels. Um, And getting back to cholesterol again, the particles have a huge indication of cardiovascular risk because your total LDL may go up, especially eating a high-fat diet, But what we will see is when you eat less refined carbohydrates, more saturated fat, and more dietary fat, that you make more large, buoyant LDL instead of small, dense LDL. And so we actually look at a particle count of the LDLs, which will give us an indicator of how many particles, not just that total weight on the scale, if you will. So you could have a cup filled with 10 marbles or 100 marbles, and you could have, you know, a tenth of the amount of of cardiovascular risk in that 10 large marbles that you would 
of the 100 tiny particle molecules. And we know that these small molecules are higher risk to oxidative damage, and that's what drives the plaque formation. So, um, you know, looking at inflammation, looking at particle size, much stronger indicators of risk factor. And even the National Institute of um, Health state this when they state on their website that 50% of people who have heart attack have quote unquote normal cholesterol levels, right? Um, So something we really need to step away from when we're looking at cardiovascular risk is just this dumbed down lipid profile. Yes. And I don't know if you guys could tell my dog is really passionate about that topic. (laughs) Wildly at the mention, but even beyond, you know, like you said, stepping away from uh, total cholesterol as an indicator of really anything. um, What about um, the presence of inflammation? And let's talk about how the cardiometabolic panel um, can help to identify some of those other risk factors for cardiovascular health. Right. So, you know, as I mentioned, it will look at CRP, which is a good marker of uh, C-reactive protein high sensitivity factor. So that's systemic marker of inflammation and the high sensitivity more so even on what's going to influence a vascular level. Um, And I've worked with individuals who in my three years of of time with them, one awesome uh, testimonial was uh, CRP in the 40s, 4-0. (laughs) And he's now at uh, 4.7. I still like it less than 0.8 <laughs> for reference. But um, I mean, remarkable reduction there. And um, that same individual had an L- an HDL that was lower than um, the goal range of over 40. He had 39 HDL. Now his HDL is at 51. Yes, his total cholesterol is up. I think it went from like 159 when he had that CRP of 40 plus um, to the total cholesterol today at like 189. But the LDL um, has maintained quite relative and the particle size has come down. So even though he has more cholesterol in his body, the inflammation, the vascular health, we've also seen with my B-complex that we added in, um, support for the methylation process. So his his, uh, homocysteine value has come down. And um, even LP little a, which is a marker of platelet aggregation or stickiness factor in the blood, um, also is trending favorably as we're bringing down that inflammation in the body, as is things like fasting insulin. So our cardiometabolic panel looks at over 30 different risk factors. It even gives you an assessment of your omega-3 to omega-6 ratio. We'll be sure to put a link in the show notes. It's definitely, I think, the most comprehensive assessment of where you're at. And it's really good if you're doing keto and you're getting anxious about your shifts in cholesterol to get a more qualitative assessment. Um, And be mindful that when you're in an active state of weight loss, your liver is carrying a higher amount of fat. Um, And so you will get an increase likely in your cholesterol, your total and your LDL during active weight loss. And that's not necessarily a harmful thing. In fact, most physicians will state that loss of weight and body fat is going to be a stronger indicator that's protective for your cardiovascular risk over concern of a short-term influx in the LDL. Yes. And I can't wait to have Dr. Ali on here to further enlighten us um, and do a really focused episode on um, cardiovascular health and keto. Uh, But just thinking through that individual that you mentioned, Ali, imagine where he would end up in the conventional model. It's like, okay, your cholesterol is high. 
here's a statin, right? And oh, he was. He was right. He was on statins and uh, metformin when we started working together, and he's now on neither drugs. And he's also down just around fifty pounds. And he said feeling like he was in his thirties. Sure. So I mean, he's feeling better. He has better muscle um, as far as his lean body mass and his kind of functional structural health. Um, he looks better. He's sleeping better. He's thinking better. Um, and he was having really bad GI distress from the metformin. I mean, obviously, and. And um, he also was having a lot of muscle wasting and cognitive influence from the statins. So we've gotten him off of those drugs. The side effects have has resolved and he's in thrive mode. And um, he's been practicing nutritional ketosis. And he is taking, I think, nine different supplements um, from the Naturally Nourished line. But I mean, we both talked about it. He's like, I don't even care. I feel like a superhuman. Let's keep it rocking. <laughs> I was like, okay, man, let's yep. do this. <laughs> and what? conventional testing may have never even caught that severely elevated CRP that's more of a risk factor for cardiovascular disease than anything um, else. And <laughs> all mortality. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Death. It's yeah. kind of a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> Try to not die. Yes, exactly. Okay. So um, beyond cardiovascular, let's talk about, you mentioned um, stool testing as well. Yeah. Um, let's talk about what a conventional stool test might look at in terms of screening for something like C. diff or E. coli or one of those you know, really acute known infectious pathogens versus a comprehensive stool analysis that we yeah. have done. Yeah. So, you know, what's interesting, and I think a lot of people don't understand if they're not in the medical field, is they think that like your blood is drawn or you submit a specimen and like things like pop out, like, you know, right? <laughs> like the when, when it's being assessed that things just like this is an issue. That's not how it works. You only get the results that you ask for to be assessed, right? So if your physician is running a stool test because you're dealing with chronic diarrhea and they say everything came back as, as fine, you need to ask them what was tested. Probably they just ran a screen for either C. diff or E. coli or maybe both. But again, that is exclusivity information. All you literally got was the word negative right? When you look at a comprehensive functional stool test, um, I am using right now doctor's data as the lab I'm working with. And we will look at on a bacteriology assessment, microbiological assessment with PCR technology, what strains of bacteria are viable in the stool. So not just what may or may not exist, what actually is existing. And then they actually will go in through DNA assessment and confirm the compound. So we will get it broken down into the um, favorable bacteria, the common soul, which is like neutral, and then the pathogenic or harmful. Um, so we can see things that are like exotic, like, you know, uh, Klebsiella, or we can find things like Enterobacter. Uh, we can find, uh, you know, beyond just testing for Candida albicans, which a conventional lab can test for in the stool or in the blood as an antigen, we can look at um, very different forms. There's hundreds and thousands of forms like Morganella species of yeast, right? Um, uh, Candida tropicana or something like that. That's one of my favorites. I forget what it's actually I know. I always imagine as like the banana boat lady, like, I I live in your belly. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But but you're going to get what is existing versus what's not. So that's the most important thing to understand. And then what makes it, that's just the microbiological element of the comprehensive stool analysis. Then we take it the next step further where beyond what is inoculating the gut, 
maybe you have sterility, maybe you have overgrowth. Um, if there was something assessed as a pathogen and you have some overgrowth, we will be guided by the lab because they will actually take that viable compound that's living in your body and test for re reactants and resistance. So we know that a lot of things like, for instance, C. diff has a lot of antibiotic resistance. So it'll test both on pharmacological and natural agents as interventions, what will respond the best to kill off this overgrowth. Um, so it'll look at things like berberine, oil of oregano, um, grapefruit seed extract, colloidal silver, and so forth. And then we'll use that as a guide to customize a cleanse for the individual if required. Also, a comprehensive stool analysis will tell us about the digestive and absorptive properties all the way down to the pH of the stool, undigested food particles, active amount of enzymes made by the pancreas, and we'll look at the fermentation byproducts like the short-chain fatty acids. And then finally, we get to look at markers of leaky gut like secretory IgA and inflammation in the gut like calprotectin and lysosomes and lactoferrin to see if the gut is battling something that was maybe overlooked in that one snapshot collection. Sure. So, that's, I mean, that's huge, especially, it's everything. you know, the calprotectin, lactoferrin, if those are elevated, we're looking at, you know, potential diagnostic of IBD, or if they're just slightly elevated, something we can get ahead of before that's seen on a colonoscopy. Right, which is we're talking Crohn's and ulcerative right. colitis. And for any of you that are dealing with those conditions, you have to do a comprehensive stool analysis at least annually, if not twice a year to stay ahead of the curve. Exactly. And then beyond stool as an analyte for uh, digestive function and process when we're dealing with an individual with GI issues, I want to bring up food sensitivity testing because I think it's really important to state that not all food sensitivity tests out there, if you can even get your doctor to run one, are created equal. And especially a lot of the ones that are on the market now for individuals to do at home. At home. Uh, yes. Yes. And I would say that also, I, I forget... Um, it's not GI map. What's or is that the name of it? There's a stool test that's available at home as well. Uh, Viome is one that I'm hearing a lot of. Viome, okay. So Viome will do the part in the beginning where it identifies the strains, but it will not look at resistance reactants. It will not look at inflammation. It will not look at malabsorption. It will not look at the byproducts. So it still is not comprehensive by any means. Um, and then yes, food sensitivity and food allergy. So. First and foremost, um, when we're running a food allergy test, this is an IgE, an immediate hypersensitivity. Um, and this is generally not what we're looking at identifying because those would be more known, like if you're dealing with anaphylactic, uh, anaphylactic reactions or anaphylaxis, like um, swelling in the mouth, you know, airway closing, whatnot. Um, a food sensitivity panel or a food... Um, delayed onset reaction is going to be generally an IgG. Now, there's different types of IgG response in the body, and we can often get a neutral IgG elevation in the type 3 and type 4 reactive pathways. Um, and this is what like the ALCAT tests. So um, we can see IgG as a form of your immune system tagging something that is commonly presented. So if you eat almond um, butter and you drink almond milk, high likelihood of getting an IgG elevation to almond, right? And um, I'm not a big fan of these panels because there is a 40 to 70% false positive associated with IgG only assessments. Now, what I'm a huge proponent of is the MRT test, which stands for mediator release test. This looks like not the potentiality of a response. So that's like the, the canon in the, in the, 
what is it called? In the tank, I guess. That's like the IgG. You're actually looking at it firing out. You're looking at the inflammatory reaction from your blood in response to these 170 foods and chemicals. So it does take into account IgG type 3, type 4 reactivity, but then it also looks at the inflammatory mediators that are released, hence for mediator release test, MRT test, it's looking for the presence of the inflammatory compounds in response to the 170 foods and chemicals. So it is results-based information. It rules out that false positive element. And I really use this like a GPS to ring out inflammation in the individual um, and also support inflammatory bowel disease as well as IBS and um, dietary distress and digestive distress. Sure. And I think the other thing to say there is when we look at an MRT with an individual either in clinic or if they purchased um, the option on our website to get an email review, we go beyond just, hey, avoid these foods, okay? We're looking at, again, like the why. We're looking at the level of reactivity. If they have a whole bunch of reds on their test, we know this individual is dealing with significant leaky gut, and we're going to make recommendations according to symptoms that are being expressed and work with digestive enzymes to help break down large food particles so they're not irritating the gut as we're trying to heal it. We're going to work with our GI lining to help rebuild and repair that gut lining as we're pulling out these foods. Yeah. And so that's a really good point. We have just shifted the structure of the website, AllieMillerRD.com, that like I said, Becky will put notes in today's episode, but you can get all of these reviewed now where you can direct purchase online um, because clinic time is only so available where a lot of you, we do include uh, within the price point, a customized email review. And that will definitely give you, like she said, immediate interventions and guidance on how to apply the information, um, which you can then use on your own or in conjunction with your healthcare team. And that's a great entry point for access and kind of immediate action plan. Awesome. So I'll make sure as we're talking through all of the various labs that we run that I link to each one where you can find that information about the various panels that we offer. Um, so going beyond you know, types of functional tests, let's circle back on defining those reference ranges and what we would consider within a conventional range um, or a, a standard testing range versus how we look for an optimal range. I always tell clients, hey, I'm going to be a little bit picky, you know, a little more picky than your doctor on this range. And I'll write out on their labs what the optimal range is for something like thyroid, for example. Yeah. So for like a TSH, we're looking between like 0.8 to 2.2 as an optimal range where that would go all the way upwards to four, right? Um, when we're looking at free T3, we're looking at usually 2.8 or a little bit more um, to get that optimal metabolic state. Um, we're looking at completely negative in thyroid peroxidase, right? That might be like at 20, where it doesn't show diagnostic until it's above 30. But if we see any presence that shows that there's inflammation in the gland, we need to act on that. We need to bring in the adaptogens. We need to bring in the anti-inflammatory support and work that stress access proactively so we're not burning out the system. So like you said, yeah, and the thyroid markers, we'll, we'll post that blog that has all of those listed. Um, and it's really throughout the, you know, depending on the compound itself, I'm always going to have a goal range. So for instance, like homocysteine values, the reference range is under 13. 
I like it less than eight to show that your body's methylating at an optimal status. Fasting insulin, you know, I also like that less than eight um, versus 20, which I believe is the acceptable range. So there's there's always a good, better, best. And um, you use that information then to determine your entry point and where we need to take your body from there. Sure. So again, like taking those labs that are quote unquote fine and putting them through um you know, a, a deeper screening um, or yes. um, looking at it in the context of symptoms that are actually expressing, you probably will find something that's off if you go off of an optimal range versus a conventionally accepted range. Yeah. And then listening to the trends of the body, right? So it's always important to have a uh, status of, you know, now as a baseline and then going forward because someone might have a free T3 that's maybe 2.5 and that may be insignificant to them if they um, are doing more intermittent fasting. We've seen that that will pull down free T3 and maybe everything else is fine. They're sleeping through the night. Um, You know, they're not dealing with metabolic hindrance where, you know, they're at an ideal body weight. They're not dealing with any symptoms of hypothyroid. We're not going to then jump on that free T3 being suboptimal. Whereas someone who is dealing with excessive body weight and dealing with chronic constipation and is expressing as hypothyroid and has that 2.5, we may you know, work with their team to work with them for a free T3 like Cytomel or a T3 add-on to their medication load to get to that optimal range. And so it's information and then taking into account how it's expressed is the other skill set of a functional practitioner to understand how important and how loud that information should speak. Sure. So individuals can have, like you said, a big range of variability within their own expression for some of these labs. Um, Totally. So much good stuff so far. Before we take it a little bit deeper and get into what labs to ask your doctor for and how to get the most if you do have insurance out of that insurance plan, let's have a word from our sponsor, Bonafide Provisions. Yes. So we're super excited to have Bonafide Provisions as sponsor for today's podcast episode. Both Becky and I use them in our household to keep in rotation between our own homemade batches of bone broth as the only true bone broth that is going to be stored in the freezer section at your grocery store or purchased frozen online. Um, And we know that it's true because it gels. And this is based on the slow cooking process that Bonafide Provisions takes the art to do, um, similar to what we do in our personal household, 18 plus hours of slow Simmering and similar to the quality that we use in our own household, using only certified organic ingredients and only grass fed, pasture raised bones as the composition, no meat or filler stock in their products. Yes. And I love that their products are frozen fresh, which means no preservatives or harmful chemicals that you don't want in your bone broth, no pasteurization, like some of the shelf stable options that really are not worth their weight. Um, Bonafide is available online and comes to you frozen. And it's also in almost every natural grocery store that I've seen, um, also available in some conventional stores and starting to take over at places like Walmart, Publix, and Kroger. Yes. So you always find Bonafide Provisions in the frozen aisle. And uh, you can go over to bonafideprovisions.com 
com uh, forward slash Allie Miller RD or put in the code Allie Miller RD at checkout and you will get 20% off your first online order. So I highly recommend going over to bonafideprovisions.com forward slash Allie Miller RD to stock up to keep you through this tail end of cold and flu season. Um, I like to use bone broth beyond a, a base for my soups. I like to use it as sipping um, in a mug and I also like to use it to deglaze my pan and um, use as a flavor enhancer and health enhancer for sauteing vegetables in the household. Yes. And I just love their little slogan. The wellness is in the gelness. So you're going to see that bone broth jiggle um, and you're going to see that it has a lot more of those gut supporting compounds. So if you are someone dealing with you know, some of the lab markers elevated, like we talked about with food sensitivity testing or a stool panel, this is something you could use as a food as medicine goal. And we use on a daily basis, honestly, to get ahead of all of that. Absolutely. And keeping connective tissue in check, I definitely noticed postpartum, excuse me, that that was the big time when I was like, okay, skin, (laughs) let's get back to where we started from. So uh, bone broth has been a daily ritual that I partake in. And I am stoked about the convenience factor of getting something as quality as I can make in my own kitchen. So again, Allie Miller RD at checkout at bonafideprovisions.com for 20% off. Awesome. Okay. So let's get into labs that you, so some of these functional labs are probably only going to be available through a functional medicine practitioner. I do not know of a lot of right. physicians. Like the MRT yeah. and the stool tests yeah. and so forth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can always ask, but you're probably going to end up running them through a functional practitioner. But there are labs that, you know, I know I go into my yearly annual physical with a two-page list of everything I want run on myself and on my husband, because I know most of these are going to be depending on insurance, uh, covered by insurance. And if I can use my physician for that, because I'm not using them for much else, quite frankly, um, I want to know, you know, what labs I can get them to run. So let's go over like the top eight, maybe 10 lab values to ask your doctor for, and let's talk about the why. Sure. So most doctors, as we mentioned, are going to run a COMP and a CBC. And a COMP stands for Comprehensive Metabolic Panel. And then a CBC stands for Complete Blood Count. You can kind of assume that that's in your annual workup, but you can request it as well. And um, both of these will look at two different things on a very broad spectrum. So a COMP is going to have liver enzymes, which is helpful to take into account. Um, So like your ALT um, and then um, AST as well, you're going to get an assessment of kidney health in the comprehensive metabolic panel with your BUN. Um, You're also going to be able to look at how your body's regulating electrolytes um, and uh, you're going to get a fasting glucose in there. So just a really preliminary assessment on how the body is working on the metabolic gland side and if there's taxation in the body, okay? Um, the CBC is going to show you complete blood count. Um, if you have any elevations or lows in white blood cells, that's going to be an indication of a risk factor for immune health or an impact of oxidative stress in the body. And then we also will look with the red blood cells if you're dealing with anemia, um, which would be seen with low hemoglobin and or hematocrit. Um, and then also within the red blood cells, um, based on the MCV and MCHC, uh, uh, a status of B vitamins um, will be seen in those values. So you can get a good little litmus as a base with those values. Um, but then I would always add on to take things a step further to get a good uh, glance at liver function. I like to request GGT 
which stands for gamma glutathione transferase. Um, this is going to uh, be showing if there's any toxicity going on in the liver and also can be an indicator of your utilization of glutathione, which is like that grand mama antioxidant. Um, you can tack on to your CBC ferritin, um, especially if you're someone that has dealt with a uh, risk of anemia um, or you're dealing with hair thinning or hair loss or any thyroid issues, ferritin is really an essential tool that you'd want to request on top of that. Um, and then aside from those two and their like build-ons, um, even within the CBC, if you feel that you have run low iron or you have a um, indicator of risk for toxicity, you might request more of a um, iron assessment that looks at your percent of your iron saturation and your total iron binding capacity. Um, because if your binding capacity is low and your saturation is low, then that's an indicator that there's a divalent or a plus two charge compound like lead or mercury or what have you that might be docking to the space where iron belongs. So again, you kind of start with the CBC and the comp, and then you could dig deeper down the rabbit hole in those worlds. Non-related to those, I always ask for a C-reactive protein. That's, again, a good base assessment of inflammation in your body. I like to ask for homocysteine as a marker of methylation, which is that process of building or excreting. So that'll give us an indicator without maybe doing the expensive MTHFR genetic panel. Um, I like to ask for a hemoglobin A1C, which now most doctors are doing, and that's a three-month average of your blood sugar levels. And then um, I also would ask for DHEAS, which is DHEA sulfate. Um, this is going to be a marker of your hormone made by your adrenal glands, which plays a huge role with mood stability, cognitive function, and the ability to produce ketones. And then I would add on vitamin D as well. All of those values will put in writing, okay, in today's show notes. And we have a panel called Weight Loss Basic and Weight Loss Plus on our website. Weight Loss Basic has all of those noted things except for the detailed iron assessment um, and the, uh, yeah, that's the only thing that's not in there. Um, and then Weight Loss Plus is going to have all of those things plus fasting insulin, lipoprotein particle distribution, so to look at the size of the lipid particles, and then all of your thyroid analytes, um, so looking at the TSH plus the free active hormone and the inflammation in the thyroid. So if you wanted to just fill out and do an order, you can do that through our site, or you can actually literally write down these values, both from our website show notes or those panels, and ask your doctor to run them. Yes. And in a lot of cases, they, they will, they might look at you like you're crazy, but it really depends. <laughs> yeah. There's podcast episode. <laughs> there's a lot of ego in the medical game and it really depends on the practitioner. Sometimes they don't like being handed a list and they'll give you a face and say, you don't need all this. Your insurance isn't going to cover it. It's going to be too expensive. And that is possible. Um, you know, so you might want to ask at a nurse's visit or call ahead um, and understand what you're getting into because I have had a couple clients now that have been billed residually from their insurance higher amounts because some of these panels like GGT, homocysteine and such might be seen as investigative and they might get a residual bill in the 500 mark more expensive than just buying it as a cash panel from our site in the first place. All right. So let's get into, Allie, a couple of kind of classic cases that you've seen of oversight when we're talking about 
lab testing, like big misses or um, areas of just straight up misinformation that you've seen in your clients? Yeah. So I think we've hit the thyroid thing, right? Like I've had people where their their TSH is elevated. Um, they're given more Synthroid, <laughs> even though their free T3 and free T4 were normal or moderate, right? And meanwhile, I ran a panel and their TPO, which is supposed to be less than 30, was over 700. And so this individual's in a, you know, intensive state of chronic inflammation, being given more medication that isn't necessary that could be leading to insomnia and anxiety and something really heavy is being over, 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 um, oversought, I guess, oversight there. So, um, um, that's a classic one to always watch for. So if you're on thyroid medication, get a thorough panel assessed. And especially if you're dealing with hair loss, get that ferritin added on because your ferritin levels need to be at least 40. Again, the, the lower normal range is 10, but they need to be at least 40 to stop hair loss and at least 70 to actually regrow hair. So this is where then you might want to prioritize. Maybe you're not anemic, right? Because your doctor says, oh, your iron's fine. But if you're dealing with hair loss, you want to look at that ferritin, especially if you also have hypothyroid, because ferritin is used in the um, active thyroid hormone production. Um, so some food for thought there. I just recently last week had a client that had a really elevated calcium cardiovascular scan. And um, I've been working with him and keeping him gout free. He had a, had a history of gout flares. So, um, you know, we were working on particular supplement strategy to keep uric acid levels and calcification regulated. Um, but he had a calcium scan done um, and it showed really high levels. I think it's because they were going to do an MRI for his like kidneys for whatever reason. Um, he had some blood in his urine, I think, or something like that. Um, well, they saw the calcification and put him on a super high statin. Um, his cholesterol now is, is dangerously low, like under 140. Um, he's dealing with anxiety, panic attack, erectile dysfunction, low testosterone. He was also put on blood thinners, um, a blood pressure medication, and what wasn't addressed was the fact that his vitamin D was at 23, mm -hmm. which is diagnostically low, right? The range starts at 30. Functional range, we like 50 to 100. But his D was less than 30. Um, he was never given a D supplement. And we know that D is used in the homeostasis or the regulation of calcium in the body, also, what wasn't run was any assessment on his parathyroid. And for someone in my mind who has a prior history of calcification, we should look into the parathyroid, which sits above the thyroid gland and regulates how calcium is regulated in the body, the actual function of your osteoclasts and um, your, your calcium regulation as far as breakdown from bone and deposit into bone. And then beyond the D, I made sure right away to give him vitamin K because we, don't, we know that vitamin D alone can cause calcification. So giving that D3 with K2 blend. And then um, I also put him right away on glutathione because we know that when glutathione levels are low, that that can create calcification or calcium deposits. So really blindly, cholesterol was never elevated, but they saw the calcium deposits in the arteries and they just put him on four drugs. <laughs> He's now dealing with all of those drug side effects while there are some root causes that either haven't been investigated or addressed. Sure. And that didn't even require you to go down the rabbit hole of functional testing, did it? I mean, I'm sure you did anyway, but like right, for some right. of these things, you can look at symptom expression. You can look at just his serum D and kind of put together the pieces. 
Right, right. Just a generalized attack plan. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that speaks so much to functional medicine in terms of looking at the whole body and systems in synergy versus looking at the D as a separate, completely separate value from, you know, the calcification he's got going on and the elevated uric acid, looking at all of these things in in a complex web of synergy, you were able to address that individual and get him, you know, on the right track. Yep, absolutely. Okay, so let's finish out today's episode with a fun little kind of hot round of, of questions. Um, We've been doing this lately. Yeah. Like we're, at, we're on the train of, yeah. <laughs> let's see how, um, how fast and how quickly we can <laughs> answer these. But I'm going to give you a little scenario of a client or example client that I've seen. And I want you to give me the one or two labs to start with and why you would start there. Okay, let's do it. All right. Fun game. Um, So starting with a client with postpartum depression and anxiety after having her first child, she had a totally normal pregnancy, but she did have severe morning sickness throughout pretty much the whole thing. It didn't stop at that first trimester. And she's now dealing with sleep disturbance beyond just the baby waking her up at all ungodly hours of the night. She was unable to produce enough milk, so she wasn't able to breastfeed. And I think that perpetuated the anxiety. And she's now prescribed Lexapro, but doesn't want to be on any meds. Where do we go first? So the first thing I like to do as a general postpartum assessment is a micronutrient test for sure, because you just created another human being. (laughs) So even though she's not having the increased demand of active breastfeeding on top of that, you know, most mamas, I wait until about the four to six month of breastfeeding to run a micronutrient test so that things kind of recalibrate a little bit. Um, But this would be a fine time to jump right into that, checking on things like magnesium, checking on things like oleic acid or fatty. Um, essential fatty acids and how those play a role with antidepressant and influence and also how those play a role with um, circadian rhythm and hormone balance as a, as a builder for hormones would be so important. Uh, where her B vitamins are at as far as neurotransmitter regulators. And then on a specific assessment, we might look at, if um, not co- cost prohibitive, an entire neurohormone complete plus panel. Now, I'd probably wait for her cycle to return, but if not breastfeeding, it may have returned already. Um, and then I would run that post ovulation to really see if she's getting ample. It sounds like probably low progesterone. Um, so see if she's getting ample progesterone and if we need to work with some bioidentical, that will help to get her likely out of the woods, get her sleeping through the night. And then we can look at her neurotransmitters and see what we can address current. And then as she gets feeling amazing, that's when she could start to consider a wean of her SSRI medication. Um, so we can bring in things like the calm and clear right away, the relax and regulate, and then look a little bit deeper down both of those areas of the blood micronutrients and the uh, urinary neurotransmitters of where we want to hit it harder. Awesome. Okay. Scenario two client with reactive hypoglycemia. So they're getting these pretty dynamic drops in blood sugar that also come with shakiness and sweating and panic attacks and perpetuating a history of anxiety that this client has had, you know, as long as she can remember. She's a former bikini competitor. So she's gotten very, very lean in the past and worked out super, super hard. Uh, But she's now steadily gaining weight unintentionally despite best attempts to stay on a low glycemic diet. Her cycle is irregular and she's been trying to conceive unsuccessfully for about a year. 
So even before testing, right, we'd want to move her out of this reactive fight or flight mode into a regulatory mode because both lifting and the the body uh, shaping and sculpting can be quite HPA axis overdrive or distressing to the body. So we need her body to feel fed, rested, and um, safe, essentially. Um, So we'd be pulling out likely intermittent fasting as a lifestyle. We would be probably playing with some carb cycling. And if her cycle is irregular, maybe following the moon to create some harmony in her body. And I would definitely drive her with that neurohormone complete plus panel to look at both cortisol because cortisol can influence blood sugar regulation, right? And um, also then looking at sexual hormone levels and the neurotransmitter so we can get the body into a harnessed metabolic and neurological state as far as mood stability. Um, Then from there, we'd probably want to look at more detailed assessment markers of insulin and blood sugar. So like a fasting insulin level, um, a hemoglobin A1C for certain. And then um, we could also even look at levels like leptin um, because it's often that with starvation mode or food restriction in that type of competition stage, there's probably imbalance in leptin and that can drive that hypothalamic amenorrhea. Um, so all that could be run in our um, cardiometabolic panel and then the neurohormone complete plus. Sure. And like you were saying too, in these individuals, we're not just, you know, prescribing a lab as like the one-stop shop. There are, you know, a synergy of or a, a vast array of symptoms that we're seeing where right away we can kind of tackle and get her above water as we also work root cause and work to get those lab values back. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. How about a client? This was probably a super obvious one to listeners, but we'll do it anyway. Um, A client with a significant history of antibiotic use, um, primarily for strep throat when they were a kiddo and ear infections, and then for acne later in life. They're now experiencing severe bloating and distension, as well as eczema and skin flares of acne coming back, as well as anxiety after they went on a recent trip overseas. Okay. So I would definitely inquire, especially with the recent trip overseas, if it was like in a third world country, I would make sure that they add a parasitology assessment on top of a comprehensive stool analysis test. Now for that individual, aside from that, you know, recent overseas thing, in general, I might just start them on a probiotic challenge before they invest in a lab. See if they tolerate good probiotic because a lot of people, because the buzz of trend of uh, doing a cleanse, which we get amazing outcomes with our Candida Cleanse Bundle, which is essentially for any form of dysbiosis as a first line plow. Um, I often see though in like these types of individuals that they're so sterile, right? So you might start with a probiotic challenge first. First, if that doesn't go well, start with the gut cleanse from our Beat the Bloat ebook and then the stool test. But it really would depend on, you know, if they're waking in the middle of the night with urgent diarrhea, you might just want to jump right into that stool test with the parasite add-on. Sure. So based on, again, the individual and, and severity of symptoms, there's a lot that we can do before we even assess. And then if we're not getting headway with a cleanse, we might look at that stool test. I've had this happen more times than not, if I don't get headway with a cleanse, I'll go through one or two rounds, kind of tweak things up. When I run the stool, there often ends up being some kind of pathogen that's resistant to, you know, the berberine and the um, candy activator, like the oregano compounds, and would do better to be eradicated with grapefruit seed extract. Right. Or caprylic acid or you name it. Mm -hmm. Okay. One more, one final one. Um, A client with a diagnosed 
autoimmune disease, so rheumatoid arthritis. They've been on methotrexate for five plus years, but are still experiencing significant pain and loss of function, and they really don't want to be on meds. Um, And the most recent trend that they're seeing is their immune health is really off. Immune system seems really low, catching every cold and virus and just feeling super tired and run down. So with anyone autoimmune wise, I do like to use the MRT test as a good um, wild card, if you will, um, because that is going to show what's driving inflammation based on their immunological surveillance system of the body, right? So that's a really great way to ensure that you're eating your body's superfoods, not kryptonite, and not driving this baseline of inflammatory influence, especially if this person with RA is also on like prednisone or something like that, which is very common, right? So they're on a steroid and methotrexate or whatnot. Um, So that would be a good entry lab. And then I would probably also preemptively hit them with glutathione, so my cellular antioxidants, because we know that calcification and arthritis are trended with low N-acetylcysteine and glutathione, so just hit them there right away. I'd put them on a high-dose EPA, DHA extra, and super turmeric, assuming that turmeric shows non-reactive in their MRT, so I'd maybe wait to bring that, and then may even bring in inflammazyme, especially if they are dealing with any like cerratic arthritis or buildup or calcification in the bone, because the inflammazyme uh, product also has the proteolytic enzymes, which help with connective tissue health. Um, I also would ensure that they're getting a methylated folate to compensate for their methotrexate um, and a higher dose on the one day that they're always off that drug, usually one day a week making sure that's being taken appropriately. And that's something to note is just downstream influence of the medications you're taking and how to make sure that they're doing least amount of side effects as possible, right? So if you're on a statin, you damn well better be taking CoQ10, right? If you're on the Trexate. So I think that's important in a whole episode on its own that we'll have to do maybe in the next coming months. Um, But uh, beyond that, I would also look at a micronutrient test because after I've brought in that glutathione and maybe omegas and maybe turmeric compounds, I'd want to look a little deeper on mineralization. I'd want to look a little deeper on other nutrients that play a role with immune health, like zinc, for instance, um, chromium, and and really get a good picture of overall status. And then I like to use micronutrient test as an abundance approach, whereas the MRT test has more of a restriction approach. So those in synergy can work very nice because then you have food as medicine abundance goals as much as a timestamp of elimination. Sure. And even for an individual not dealing with one of the conditions that we've mentioned, usually the micronutrient is kind of our yearly timestamp assessment of overall health and really how to optimize supplementation and food goals to keep that individual thriving. Absolutely. Awesome. So it's always so fun to get to pick your brain like this. (laughs) We'll we'll keep these coming if you guys like this kind of rapid fire style at the end of our podcast episodes. Um, And I'm pretty sure you could do that in your sleep, Allie. It's pretty amazing. But Oh, man. (laughs) That's it for today, you guys. So as always, thank you so much for listening. And if you love our podcast and have not hopped on over to iTunes yet and left us a five-star review, please do so along with a couple of sentences about what you love about the podcast and share it on social media as well. So while you're on iTunes or your preferred podcast listening software, you can actually just screenshot and tag at Allie Miller RD 
on your Instagram story. And that gets our podcast into the hands of more people who need it. Absolutely. And if you haven't yet, check out, like I said, on um, AllieMillerRD.com under my clinic tab is where we will have uh, the lab access. So you can read more in detail about these panels and um, it will be either Becky or myself. We're that real. (laughs) That will be directly uh, giving you your results along with a customized assessment. And that may be just that final layer that you need to get into thrive mode for your food as medicine journey. So thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.